Good morning, everyone. Uh, as, as Pastor T2 said, I, I know Scott Hollander has a thing about never apologize when you begin a lesson, but I, I do want to apologize about when, when I was making those requests over and over and over again. I wish I had more time. I wish I had more time. Um, and so thank you to the, the elders and, uh, in allowing me to speak. Um, I have you know, the honor, again, to speak on you on my journey into covenant theology, and just a, a brief summary of what we discussed last time. Um, we, uh, I, I gave an overview of the three foundational covenants in my journey that I, uh, in, in regards to covenant theology. Uh, we began with the covenant of redemption and how it is the eternal intertrinitarian covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in accomplishing the redemption of the elect. I shared a quote from uh, R.C. Sproul. And that uh, stood out to me in my own journey that summarizes how this covenant is accomplished. Uh, he says, It is the Father who sends the Son into the world to redeem his people. It is the Son who accomplishes that redemption by his work of obedience. And it is the Spirit then who applies the work of Christ to his people. It is the Spirit who brings us to the Son, who reconciles us to the Father. Uh, this is the covenant that we will be looking at closer this morning. Uh, we then examined the covenant of works. We saw how Adam, being humanity's covenantal head, violated the terms of the covenant that God entered into with him in the garden. Um, the covenant of works brings only death under Adam's headship, but under the covenantal headship of Christ, the true and better Adam, it brings life to those who are elect in him. Um, I hope to examine this covenant in the month of June. And then we briefly close by looking at the covenant of grace. We saw how this covenant began immediately after the fall and God's promise to Adam and Eve and that he would um, put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we also looked at a quote from Herman Bovink where he talks about how this plays out practically in the church. He says in his Reformed Dogmatics, the covenant of grace is about not only individual persons but also organic wholes, including families and generations. Therefore, some who remain inwardly unbelieving will for a time in the earthly administration and dispensation of the covenant of grace will be part of the covenant people. The final judgment belongs to God alone, and in this life the church must regard such with judgment of charity. And so I hope to examine that one in the month of July, so these three lessons. So brief summary. Um, of what we previously discussed. And so I'd like to take a closer look at the covenant of redemption in my own journey this morning. Um, and so you have your outlines. And um, I want to... My outline goes looking at the historical origin, the development and understanding of this covenant, then examining scripture and how it speaks about this topic, and finally close with addressing why does this matter. Um, and uh, I'll be interweaving my own journey into this as well. So the historical origin and objection to this covenant. Historically, the term, uh, the covenant of redemption, um, seems to suddenly appear on the scene in the middle of the, six, uh, the 1600s. In 1638, the first recorded usage that we have is from David Dixon at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, and he gave a lecture that was titled Arminianism Discussed, uh, where he... Um, corrects some of the errors of Arminianism or addresses some of the errors of Arminianism and he presents the Reformed view which contains the covenant of redemption. And uh, over the course of the next decade, 
from 1638 to 1648, Dixon and several other well-known theologians, Thomas Goodwin, who was a member of the Westminster Assembly, Edward Fisher, John Owen, and James Durham would write several papers using the term covenant of redemption when referring to the eternal redemptive activity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so early on in my own journey, when I began to study about covenant theology um, and become familiar with these terms, this term for me, the title, the covenant of redemption, I thought at first it was very speculative, and I had questions and reservations about it. Um, why does this term suddenly seem to appear out of nowhere in the middle of the sixth, or 17th century? Um, shouldn't things that arise very quickly give us reason to pause in a way? We see that through church history. And <clears throat> these questions and reservations that I was experiencing were already shared by several other men within the Reformed community. Uh, men like Karl Barth, John Murray, Robert Latham, and Opalma Robertson. And specifically, Opalma Robertson I want to focus on because uh, I highly recommend his book, The Christ of the Covenants. But in, in his book, he does bring up some objections and reservations to this covenant um, and that, that I shared with him. And so the first quote from Robertson there, he says, This particular covenant finds no specific development in the classic creeds of the Reformers of the 16th and 17th century but it has been recognized broadly among covenant theologians since that time. A sense of artificiality flavors the effort to structure in covenantal terms the mysteries of God's eternal counsels. So once again, at the time, I agreed with Robertson. Being completely unfamiliar with these terms and understanding it, the sense of artificiality, of speculation, and even at the time of what seemed to be the forcing of covenantal terms into uh, scripture and it seemed to me to go beyond what was written in scripture because I was ignorant without knowledge about it and this is also another point that Robertson makes he says scripture simply does not say much of the pre-creation shape of the decrees of God to speak concretely of an inter-trinitarian covenant with terms and conditions between father and son is to extend the bounds of scriptural evidence beyond propriety and so Robertson concludes that those who hold to the understanding of a pre-creation covenant between the Father and the Son, and by inclusion the Spirit, are assuming that a covenant is defined simply as a mutual contract or agreement, and not as he sees a covenant to be properly defined as, quote, a bond in blood or a bond in life and death sovereignly administered. From Robertson's definition of covenant, it is required to be instituted by the shedding of blood. And he sees Hebrews 9, 16 through 18 as giving the proper definition of a covenant. And so Hebrews 9, 16 through 18 says, For where there is a testament, there must also be of necessity the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while a testator lives. And this is where he pulls this objection from. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. When God makes a covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, we see the suzerain vassal ceremony. We talked about this previously, which included the cutting or dividing of animals and laying opposite of one another and the shedding of blood. Genesis 15.10, then he brought all these 
to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Likewise, when God ratifies a covenant with the people of Israel in Exodus 24.8, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. And we see it with Christ when he speaks of the new covenant by saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. These examples meet the biblical requirement as O'Palmer Robertson sees it to be defined as. Therefore, when he views this, what the covenant theologians would call the covenant of redemption, he says that this does not meet the requirement as given by Scripture between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But as I continue to examine different writers, uh, I begin to have some questions about Robertson's definition. Uh, I begin to see that his definition of covenant did not sufficiently encompass all covenants in Scripture. Um, For example, God's covenant with Noah and with David, which Robertson agrees in his book, The Christ of the Covenants, are covenants. These are not instituted by blood. The covenant between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18, where Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul, involves no shedding of blood and the dividing of animals. And the covenant between Israel and the Gibeonites in Joshua 9 was also not a covenant instituted by blood. And so these these covenants are not only between men, uh, between nations, and also between God and man. Um, They do not always require a suzerain vassal type ceremony, which included the cutting, dividing of animals, and the shedding of blood. But I had to agree that these are covenants as defined by Scripture itself. So while I, I do believe that Robertson's definition of covenant being a bond in blood or a bond of life and death sovereignly administered is an appropriate definition, and I still highly recommend the book for anybody interested in reading it, I do not believe that his definition fully encompasses all covenants in Scripture. Um, And so with, in my own journey, with that objection um, and answers addressed or answered, uh, I began to examine two other primary objections that I shared with Robertson with regard to the covenant of redemption. One, its sudden appearance onto the scene in the 17th century. And two, its lack of development in the classic creeds of the reformers of the 16th and 17th century. And I would even say the writings of men during the Reformation of the 16th and 17th century. And so let us examine both of these objections. So it's, it's not an appearance and development. Uh, like I said, I must agree that the covenant, the title, the covenant of redemption, has not been found in any writings as of yet, before the 17th century. As I previously mentioned, David Dixon in 1638 at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland is currently believed to be the first person who is recorded to use this title. But I believe all of us must agree that many titles and terms seem to suddenly appear during the Reformation. Uh, The the five solas, for example. Uh, Luther was proclaiming the doctrine of sola fide, before the term sola fide came to be. Augustine, which was more than a thousand years before the Reformation, 
was declaring the doctrine of sola gratia, or grace alone, and through faith alone, long before the term was used. And so I came to realize, though, that the language was there. The imagery was there. And so I began to study whether the teachings and writings of theologians with regard to this eternal activity between the Father, Son, and Spirit was foreign to church history in the, uh, before the 17th century. And the short answer being, it was not. It was not foreign at all. While Dixon's lecture in 1638, titled Arminianism Discussed, was addressing several errors of Arminianism at the time, Jacob Arminius himself, in 1603, explicitly references the covenant between the Father and the Son. Now, I know that quoting Jacob Arminius in a positive light might get me in trouble here. Um, might be dragged outside in stone. But I, I want to show that Arminius himself, while he gets many things wrong, he does view the relationship between the Father and the Son to be a covenant. Arminius said, quote there in the outline, not only on the account of the decree of God is faith in Christ necessary, but it is also necessary on account of the promise made unto Christ by the Father and according to the covenant which was ratified between both of them. This is the word of that promise. Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Psalm 2.8. Christ, therefore, by the decree the promise, and the covenant of the Father has been constituted the Savior of all that believe on Him. Arminius saw Psalm 2.8 clearly showing that before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son entered into covenant relationship to redeem the heathen for thine inheritance. Because at no time from His incarnation to His ascension do we see Scripture speaking about any time where Jesus asked for the nations for His inheritance. Scripture does clearly speak, though, about this agreement between the Father and the Son in eternity before the foundation of the world. And we will examine this later. But what Arminius saw in Psalm 2.8 is that an agreement or covenant was between the Father and the Son to accomplish the redemption of all that believed on Him. So moving from the 17th century to the 16th century, I found Theodore Beza, who was a student of John Calvin, in 1567, while examining Jerome's translation of the Latin Vulgate, was studying a specific passage of Luke 22:29, which reads in the Vulgate, "And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father appointed unto me a kingdom." Beza noted that Jerome used the term "appoint" to translate the Greek word for covenant, and Beza believed this to be an incorrect translation. So in Beza's translation of the New Testament, he translated as, I therefore covenant to you, just as my father covenanted to me a kingdom. <coughs> to, to borrow a quote from a, a theologian today, J.W. Fesco, when speaking about Beza's translation here, he says, Beza dropped an exegetical pebble in the theological pond, and it rippled into the 17th century, and I would even say that it has rippled through to our century today. But even before the 16th century, we can look all the way back to the late 4th, early 5th century with 
Augustine and Chrysostom. Chrysostom was someone who uh, Elder Andrew Hoy talked about in the Reformation month. But we see these two men engaging in discussion about the uh, ontological or substance uh, equality of the father and the son and the economic aspect of the son's person and work and submission to the father to accomplish the redemption of the elect. Augustine might not use the term the covenant of redemption, but the language is there. The imagery is there. Um, to borrow another quote or another example from Fesco, he uses an example. Imagine you're in a room with one other person, and all of a sudden that person gets a call. You've never met this person before, but they get a call on their phone, so, so they answer it. And so the conversation, you only hear one side of it. And so imagine you're hearing this, they pick up, hello, hey Brian, yeah, everything is here, it's beautiful. Yep, the pastor is here, the bridegroom just finished the pictures, the bride is ready, the caterer is ready to go, and the grandmother of the bride just arrived. Yes, they, they picked up the, they chose the first dance song this morning. Do you know if they picked out the last dance song? Great, I'll let the DJ know. Yep, I got the rings. Awesome. Bye. No one sitting in that room listening to one side of the conversation is going to say that wasn't a wedding being discussed because they didn't use the word wedding. Scripture speaks the same way of this. Just because these different theologians throughout church history haven't used the title the covenant of redemption, the language is there. The imagery is there. As these men that I've mentioned here in this just these few examples of Dixon, Arminius, in this instance, Arminius, uh, Beza, Augustine, and there's many others we can look at, Rutherford, Turretin, Gillespie, Witsius, and more modern like Voss or Bavink or Hodge. The term the covenant of redemption might not always be used, but the language is there. The doctrine is there. These men knew the doctrine of this covenant does not rest upon one specific proof text, which we will examine next, but it rests upon pillar after pillar after pillar. And if you remove one pillar, it still stands secure and unmoved. Because the theologians of not only the 16th and 17th century, as we examined, but throughout church history who have embraced this doctrine did so for one foundational reason. And that is they believed that Scripture taught it. The language of Scripture pointed to it. The dialogue between the Father and the Son pointed to it. And the teaching of individual passages proved it to be true. And so, in my own journey, after those objections laid to the side, those questions answered, I began to look at these different pillars in Scripture. And so I wanted to go to Dixon since he used the first, or recorded as using the term for the first time. Dixon observed that Scripture clearly speaks, clearly and regularly speaks of the redemption of the elect in transactional terms. Given just a couple verses there, Acts 20, 28, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for you were bought at a price. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 
And you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. This is something that I had seen, but I had not seen the significance or the importance of it. Paid close attention to it, this type of language. Dixon pointed out that, two, buying and selling presumes that the parties involved have reached prior agreement regarding the terms and conditions of the transaction. The passage of 1 Peter 1, 18-19, for example, concludes in verse 20 that he, Christ, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. This shows that the Father and the Son agreed before the foundation of the world that the Son would purchase the elect by being the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice for their debt. Dixon also points out that three, Jesus himself regularly speaks of transactional or covenantal language with the Father prior to his incarnation. And there's several verses there. Uh, specifically, John, the last one there, John 17, 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so from these passages, Dixon shows that Scripture speaks in transactional terms of buying and selling. These terms imply prior agreement between the Father and the Son. And Jesus proves this by speaking of his mission on earth and agreement to the terms between himself and and the Father. In understanding that the Son agreed to the requirements given to him by the Father, the covenant of redemption is to Christ a covenant of works. In order for the elect to be redeemed and saved from the wrath of God, Christ must accomplish the work given to him by the Father. This work involves entering into time itself, taking upon flesh, being born of a woman, being born under the law, and being the substitutionary death for those chosen in him by the Father from before the foundation of the world. You see Galatians 4, 4 through 5 saying, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now in seeing the Son has work to be accomplished in the covenant, the Spirit as the third person of the Godhead, is also active um, is also active in work that is unavoidable and vital in fulfilling this covenant. The Spirit always operates with the Son and the Father, in the same way that the Spirit or the Son and the Father never operate separate from the Spirit. Scripture speaks of the Spirit's work in the incarnation, the resurrection, the Spirit being poured out at Pentecost and the application of the work of Christ to the elect. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit must be seen as having distinct and vital roles in the covenant of redemption. The Father does not become incarnate and die upon the cross. The Son does not raise himself from the dead. And the Spirit does not send the Son from eternity. But each person of the Godhead is seen as operating with distinct roles. The Father sending, the Son accomplishing, and the Spirit applying. I spoke previously in, in my last lesson about Ephesians 1, 3-14 through 14, uh, as being a foundational passage in my own journey. And I'd like us to turn there very quickly. So if you would, please turn with me to Ephesians 1. 
3 through 4, or 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. This passage in my own journey shows the activity of each of the persons of the Godhead accomplishing the redemptive work of the elect. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by, by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the redemption, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In Him also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And so in in this passage, we see the father choosing in verses 3 through 6, the son accomplishing the work given to him by the father, verses 7 through 12, and the spirit applying or sealing the work of Christ to the elect, verses 13 and 14. And so I, th- I thought I had put it on the outline, but I don't think I did. There's many other passages uh, that relate to this covenant of redemption. If you wanted to write a couple of them down, uh, Psalm 2, 7 through 8 was one that really stood out to me. Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, Zechariah 6, 13, and 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. And I can give you those later today. But this passage specifically in Ephesians 1 is the, the one passage that completely changed in my thinking. Uh, I came from an evangelical or dispensational background, and so I didn't really know how to interpret Ephesians 1. You know, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What, what does that even mean? You know, and, and so in coming into covenant theology, this passage is just completely different to me now. And, and I, I cannot read it or hear it being read without rejoicing in this glorious covenant of redemption. And so, application. I, I left that out. I left that practical side out in my, in my previous lesson. Andrew Hoy was talking about that. And 
the question of, well, why is this important? You, you've said all of this, you've shown this, but why does it matter? How does the covenant of redemption have any significance in my day-to-day life? Let me present two things that I found significant in my own life when I came to understand this covenant. Actually, let me present three things. One, the covenant of redemption is the surety of the elect. The unchangeable covenant of God is our surety. Our salvation is sure. Because just as it is impossible for God to lie, it is impossible for our salvation to be undone. Scripture testifies to this in Philippians 1.6 by saying, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or as the ESV says, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. The elect are safe because the Father has given them to the Son, and Christ says that this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I shall lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. John 6.39 The Son accomplishes everything that He said He would do. And the Spirit, as we read in Ephesians 1.13, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The Spirit will surely apply the redemptive work of Christ to the elect. The Spirit brings us to the Son who reconciles us to the Father. And all of that is done to the praise of His glorious grace. And so the the covenant of redemption is the surety of the elect. Not based upon anything that they have done or can ever do, but upon the eternal activity of God from before the foundation of the world to redeem a people to himself. And this surety of redemption should be of great comfort to us. Number two, the covenant of redemption guards against speculation. And I know I brought up that at first I was speculative. I had questions. But the more I studied this, I realized that we have, as we've examined here this morning, we have not only seen what several theologians have said with regard to this covenant, but we have examined what Scripture communicates in its transactional language between the Father and the Son. And rather than speculate about the eternal decrees of God before the foundation of the world, This covenant points us directly to the mediator of this covenant. And what he says about it. Michael Horton in his book, God of Promise, says that God's predestination is hidden to us, but Christ is not. The unveiling of the mystery hidden in past ages, the person and work of Christ becomes the only reliable testimony to our election. Those who trust in Christ belong to Christ, are elect in Christ. What better place to look than the person and work of Christ in this covenant? He is the one who communicates it to us, and it guards against speculation through his word. And three... The covenant of redemption communicates the incredible love of God. We have been chosen by the Father to be redeemed by the Son and that redemptive work applied to us by the Spirit. 
We should rejoice like John when he says in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. The beautiful truth that God from eternity set His covenantal love upon His people and accomplished their redemption communicates not only the incredible love that God has for the elect, but also communicates the incredible love that the persons of the Godhead have for one another. The love that the Father has for the Son, the love that the Son has for the Spirit, and the love that the Spirit has for the Son. The theologian Wilhelmus Brockel, when talking about this covenant, he says, The covenant of redemption is a covenant of love between those whose love proceeds from within themselves. Without there being any lovableness in the object of this love, oh, how blessed is he who is incorporated in this covenant being enveloped and irradiated by this eternal love, is stirred up to love in return, exclaiming, we love him because he first loved us. The covenant of redemption in my own journey came from being speculative to being solidified in Scripture in my own journey. Its sudden appearance, not so sudden, title might have been in the 17th century, but the language has been throughout church history, and as we've seen in Scripture itself. The recognition of this covenant by many theologians down throughout church history testifies to what Scripture communicates in transactional terms about the redemption of the elect. And as our confession says at the bottom of the page, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, article 1, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and men, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Any questions? Andrew. So as far as the debate about the term covenant of redemption, or whether or not this uh, pre-creation agreement should be called a covenant, Mm -hmm. what do you think is lost if we don't call it a covenant? Or do you think there is an- I think there is an importance in understanding a covenant and not just an agreement because scripture elsewhere translate or uses parallel terms with covenant oath, statute, a sworn promise. Uh, and if it's just an agreement, God does not break his covenant promises. <coughs> and, and so I, I think the importance of using the term or using covenant is because there are terms to a covenant. Whereas we could say that an agreement has them also, but a covenant is a sworn oath by God. And so I see now see that using covenantal terms, I think is very important. Um, I know I'm not really answering your question. I'm being, I'm being a politician. (laughs) Uh, Um, And like I said, uh, or I, I don't know if I've said, I'm still very new to covenant theology. This is still a brand new thing to me. I'm only 
two years into this. And so I'm still learning. I, I was doing more research on what does it mean that the, the sun is um, uh, the eternal sonship of Christ. What does that, what does that mean in, in covenantal terms? And so with, with Robertson's objection of there's no terms and conditions, I, I think that was on one of his quotes. He says up towards the beginning... Uh, yeah, so in the towards the middle of the page, scripture does not scripture simply does not say much of the pre-creation shape of the decrees of God to speak concretely of an intertrinitarian covenant with terms and conditions between the Father and the Son is to extend the bounds of scripture evidence beyond propriety. I think we see those terms and those conditions by the transactional language between the Father and the Son in John and other passages in the New Testament. And so I think that that gives extra emphasis to it being a covenant, not just a, an agreement. Where, where we have agreements here on earth, we know that we break those agreements. But God himself, when he makes a promise, we understand it to be a covenantal thing, that he cannot break it. I hope that answers it somewhat. Good, good question. Anyone else? Okay, let us pray. Our almighty God of covenant, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, you sovereignly chose to redeem a people for yourself. That through you sending the Son, through the Son accomplishing the work given to him, and through the Spirit applying that work, we have been redeemed. And so we, we thank you for choosing not based on our own meritorious work, but upon the work of the perfect mediator of the covenant and that being Christ. And so we, we thank you also for the spirit that he will apply the work of Christ to us. And I, I pray, Father, that as, as we think about this covenant, that it would be of comfort to us to know that you have chosen, you have said, you have promised And you will accomplish what you have sworn to do. We know that it is by grace that we have been saved. It's nothing we have done. And so we thank you for this covenant of redemption that scripture communicates to us. And we thank you for the men throughout church history who have worked through this doctrine and communicate it to us today. I ask that you would bless the rest of your Lord's Day, bless the preaching of your word as your people gather to worship you. I ask all these things in the name of your Son, through the power of your Spirit, to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Amen.